Well, please join me now in Isaiah chapter 1. We're re-entering our summer series talking about the big picture, looking at the, really the, the summary of the entire Bible, God's salvation history, distilled down into four words, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Today, we get to talk about redemption. Full disclosure, you've been hearing me talk a lot about redemption. That's the message of the gospel until we go home to be with the Lord, but all today to focus on redemption. It's been a number of years ago now when Joy and Hillary and I lived in Central Asia. Then we had six months that we lived in Cyprus in the, Medi in the Mediterranean before coming back to the United States. And in our place there in Cyprus, we have, had a rented house and beneath the residence was an office. And there was an outside entrance to the, to the office down there. So there was one day when Joy and I were down there working and Joy left five minutes before me to go on upstairs to the residence and I was to follow. And so when it came time for me to join Joy and Hillary upstairs, I came out of the office to the, to the exterior stairwell and I pulled the door behind me. I expected to hear that clasping sound of the lock mechanism, but I didn't hear that, that clasping sound. I heard a, a, a thud kind of sound, dull sound. So I looked back to see why didn't the door shut, and I saw the tail of a reptile caught in the door. I did not know what type of reptile. I do not like reptiles of any kind. So I was a bit mortified, like what is on the other side of this door? Now, Joy had told me that when I'd been traveling the week prior, that the neighbors had shown her what a blunt-nosed viper looks like. In the vacant lot beside our house there, they had they'd killed one, and it's a very poisonous snake there in Cyprus. So they wanted us Americans, they wanted Joy to know, look, this is what they look like. Watch out for these. So I went upstairs. I said, don't tell Hillary, but come down here. I want to know if this is a blunt-nosed viper caught in our door. And Joy said, I don't, I don't think that's a blunt-nosed viper. That doesn't look like what they show me. But what was it? What kind of reptile is inside the office? And I'm staring at a tail here. So, you know, the only way to find out is to open the door. And I didn't want to open the door. But we open the door and down drops this monstrous, dragon-like iguana creature Stuck, still stuck to the door. So the door's open. He's dropped down. He's fused to the door. He's not happy. He's about the size of, I guess, from my elbow to my fingertips. And he's got muscles. And he's hissing at us upside down. Claws, teeth, cone on the head. I've never seen one of these. I'm from North Carolina. We don't have these. I don't know its moves. I don't know how dangerous it is. But worse was, I didn't know what to do. I was paralyzed with fear. My mind's racing, like, what do you do? I thought, you know, in America, I'd call Orkin, Terminex, Animal Control. I mean, really, I was running through, like, who do you call for this monster in the office stuck to a door? So I had nothing, spinning, spinning, nothing, nothing, nothing. Then Joy spoke. She said, here's what we're going to do. I love those words. It's like, she's got a plan. I have no idea. She has a plan. Here's what we'll do. And then the plan was even better. She said, we're going to get a bag and a broom. And I'm going to get underneath it with the bag. And you're going to knock it in with the broom, not to get it on my hands. And then we'll get it out of here. I loved everything about that plan. Joy was going to put herself inches from the monster. <laughs> and I'd be at the safe end of a broom handle. <laughs> and so sure enough, that was the plan. Her idea, we executed it beautifully. And so I remember Joy gathered up this monster and hands it to me in the bag. says, the rest is on you. <laughs> so 
I got it outside. I came back in and I pronounced to her what I'm pronouncing to you. I said, Joy, you are my hero. Really, it was one of her finest moments in all of our marriage. <laughs> not so much for me, not a great manly moment for me. Just illustrating, sometimes in life, we can hit something so big, so out of the ordinary, so scary that we don't know what to do. We're stuck. I want you to know our God never has moments like that. It's impossible for our God to hit something so big, so scary that he'd go, whoa, I didn't see that coming. Or I, I don't know what to do. God never has that paralysis of fear. And so if we come back to these four words of, of the summary of salvation history, we've got this good creation, but then this cataclysmic, devastating fall. God looked at that fall and he was not caught off guard by that. Do you know that God knew about the fall before he ever created the world? God knew about, about the fall. He knew what he was going to do in response to the fall. These mysterious, wonderful verses in the book of Revelation that say that, that he wrote our names in the Lamb's book of life, listen, before the foundation of the world. So what, God wasn't scrambling like, okay, I didn't see this coming. Let's, let's hastily put together a plan of redemption. Oh, he already had it before he ever created anything. So our God stared that down and, and he had a plan. He had a plan to offer redemption to sinners like us. God had a plan to rescue fallen people from sin and from death. God had a plan for his own son to leave heaven, come to the earth, to give his life, to make atonement for our sins. And it's amazing news that we're just going to get to revel in together here for a little while. Great news. And I could have gone to many different passages in the Bible because the, the redemption theme, theme is the theme of the Bible. But I felt drawn to two passages in the book of Isaiah. Right now in Isaiah 1, and then before we close, I'll have us in Isaiah 53. I want us to see three things together this morning. First of all, the need for redemption, God's heart to redeem us, and God's plan to redeem us. But together, first of all, our need for redemption. This is Isaiah 1, verses 1 through 5. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he, had, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. So since the fall, every human being that God has interacted with has been totally corrupted by sin. And here in Isaiah 1, he's addressing his people, his chosen nation of Israel, and he's calling out their sins. And we're going to look at that in a moment. These people that God had set his affections on, this people that he had pulled together through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and after all God had done, this people that he's going to bring redemption through. Once again, we find them in terrible, gross sin. Once again, we find them like the pagan nations around them. And so God addresses it here. 
Look again what we saw. In verse 2, we see this, where God calls out their rebellion and rejection of him. Verse 2, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Think of all God had done for Israel. Again, brought them into being a people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, gave them prophets like Moses who would guide them, provide for them, even through Moses bringing the law to them. God delivered them from many oppressors. We think about his deliverance from Egypt and all the ways he delivered them. But here they are once again in rebellion against their good father. Once again, biting the hand that had been feeding them. Again, children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Verse three, we see this. How foolish and unreasonable they have become in their sin. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know my people do not understand. Then verse four, we see how they had become totally corrupted in sin. Ah, sinful nation, a people, notice this, a people laden with iniquity. Offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. That's not a pleasant description of them, but it was true. We saw a couple of weeks ago in Ephesians 2 how sin not just wrecked the world, but has wrecked us as individuals. How the Bible describes us accurately, apart from Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And you remember some of those descriptors of lost humanity that, that we came from ourselves? Things like sons of disobedience. That was us, our nature before Christ rescued us. How about this one? Remember this one from Ephesians 2? We were, by nature, children of wrath. And so here in Isaiah, same type of language. We were offspring of evildoers. We were children who deal corruptly. That's how God describes his people. But if you can believe it, it gets worse. Look at the latter part of verse 4 again. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. So in their sin, God says, you have forsaken me. You've, you've actually despised me. My own people that I have loved, you actually despise me. Understand, every person who turns away from God and says, I'm going to live a life of sin, no matter how they want to put that in their minds, no matter how they might rationalize it, God receives it as, you are forsaking me. You actually despise me. We protest, no, no, but I really love you. I really love you. I have emotions for you, but I'm going to go live my, my way over here, guys, and I, I don't receive that as love. That's not love. You're forsaking me. You've despised me. So let's just pause here for a moment of application. Maybe, maybe I've described you today. Maybe you have considered yourself one of God's people in the sense that you've been a part of the church. You've grown up hearing the gospel. You, you feel like you're a part of this community, but you're not desiring to follow after God. You're living your own life and you know it's not what God's called you to. And you think, I think God's probably okay with this. He's not okay with that. He says, you have forsaken him. I know these words are hard to hear, but you are despising him. That's how he receives it. You are utterly estranged from him. But I want you to pay attention this morning because redemption is available to you today. This is the good news. Continuing here with their need and our need for redemption, verse five again, why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. Maybe you remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about total depravity and how R.C. Sproul said he prefers a different term to that, this term radically corrupted by sin. And that's certainly what Isaiah points out here is God diagnoses his people. The whole head is sick. The whole heart 
is faint. Sin radically infects and corrupts us. But then notice this. Even in their gross sin, they kept up their, act, their outward acts of worship. They're full of sin, but outwardly religious. This is verses 11 and following. Listen to this. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. God lets them know that with a sinful, rebellious heart, when they now come with that heart and try to bring some version of worship, God said, I won't have it. Do you notice language here? God said, I, I hate that type of worship. I don't want to hear your prayers. I won't. You bring a rebellious heart and you do the formal acts of worship. It's to no purpose. In fact, we see this same type of grotesque hypocrisy in the Pharisees, even in the New Testament, where they had a meticulous expression of outward religion, but their hearts were not for God and not for other people. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 15, 8, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Again, let me ask you, is that you this morning? Are you running hard in rebellion in your private life? You have a secret life that you maybe and your friends know and you're running hard in that. And yet you still want to gather for the appearance of Christianity in a place like this. Listen, understand if that is you, God sees it. God loathes it. And you're adding to your guilt by doing that. Somebody might think, no, I'm living a crazy life. I'm living a life of rebellion. I just don't want people to know, but, um, but at least I come to church. At least I worship. I'm sure that kind of balances it out some. I mean, I don't even have to come, but at least I'm doing that. God has to be pleased. No, he's not at all pleased. If you come to worship like that, actually God's not pleased. You're adding guilt on top of the guilt. So you got your crazy week of rebellion and disobedience. Then you come in and give a sham of worship. And God says, this is, this is offensive. And you're offending him even more every week when you do that. So somebody might say, well, then fine, I'll stop the worship and everything's resolved. No, no, don't do that. I've met people through the years who would say, well, at least I'm not a hypocrite. Like I don't go to church. I don't do any of that. At least I'm not a hypocrite. And I think they expect to be praised for that. As if, as if maybe on the day of judgment with all their rebellion, they say, hey, God, at least I wasn't a hypocrite. As if God's supposed to say, oh, well, good. You, you're just so blatant in your sinning that we'll welcome into heaven. It doesn't work that way. Listen, open rebellion against God is gross and vile, but so is hidden rebellion against the Lord. That's gross and vile. So the solution is not, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop worship so I can give myself to sin. No, stop the life of sin, repent, believe in Jesus, and then have a life of just perpetual worship and joy in the presence of God. That's what we're called to. We can't have both. So here's the question. Is there any hope for a people like we read about in Isaiah 1? gross and rebellious. God says, you're despising me. You're bringing this hideous, fake worship to me. Is there any hope for people? What would you expect God to say to them next? Not what we read next. 
Look at verse 18, because now we've been talking about the need for redemption. Now let's hear together God's heart to redeem us. What a shock when we read verse 18. God says to these people, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Here God, through his prophet, speaks as if in a courtroom, calls heaven his witness and lays out the charges against his faithless people, laying out all of their guilt. These people infected by sin, radically corrupted by sin in a pitiful, deeply offensive condition. And yet God says, I'm initiating redemption to you. You're thoroughly messed up, your whole head, your whole heart, but I'm initiating it. Notice what God's saying in verse 18. I could cleanse you entirely. All that I've said about you through my prophet is all true. And it's a terrible picture, but I can make you completely clean. This is amazing. It's so surprising if you think about it, that our God would do that. Have you ever played that game in your head? What you would do if you were God, you wouldn't do this. When you and I play that game, if I were God and everybody sinned like this, we, we would be very quick tempered. The game would have been over a long time ago. And I just think what, what an amazing God this is who says to sinners like us, come now, let's reason, let's reason together. He made the case of their guilt. There's no counter argument. There's no denial that this is true. And surprisingly, God then makes the move. I'm going to offer you, I'm going to cover your guilt. I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to justify you. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. What kind of God is like this who initiates forgiveness and cleansing? It's absolutely amazing. How could we not draw near to a God like this? How could we not take up God's offer of forgiveness that he's offering like this? Though your sins are like scarlet just means your sins like you are dark red, like a garment hopelessly stained by something deeply stained. Same thing with crimson, dark red, deeply, hopelessly stained. And this is a great picture of what sin does to us. We can't solve this problem on our own. So God initiates the solution to this. He can redeem us. He can cleanse us completely. He can reconcile us to himself. Total cleansing is being offered. So you think about your life and the things that you've done, those things that you're most ashamed of. And God says, come now, let us reason together. I can wash it all away. And I want to wash it all away. Do you see here? It's God's idea that he wants to cleanse. He wants to redeem. So yes, great creation, perfect. A terrible fall. And you and I participate in that ongoing fall of our nature through our sin. And here's God saying, but I would redeem you. Oh, there's no one like God, the grace of God. So our need for redemption, God's heart to redeem us. But now God's plan to redeem us. And this is where I want you to turn with me to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 tells us how God will ultimately cleanse all who will believe. Isaiah chapter one tells us, and Isaiah 53 tells us that one is going to come who's gonna take our sin upon himself and he's gonna cover that, he's gonna atone that. Let's hear it together. This is 700 years before Jesus came, but this is like reading one of the gospels, isn't it? 
Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 6. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Listen to this. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We could skip down to verse 11. Hear this. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So at the fall, when Adam and Eve totaled the earth, brought sin into devastation just as God had warned, God very much could have said, and that's it. That's the end of the story. You wrecked what I gave you and justice is now served. It is over eternal loss, but God did not do that. He set his eternal plan into motion right at the very beginning. So remember in Genesis chapter three, after the fall, they became aware of their nakedness and they were ashamed. What did God do? God really had the first animal sacrifices. He slayed an animal and clothed them with the skins we're going to see throughout the Old Testament, the animal sacrifices, but ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, the final sacrifice. God initiated that right there at the fall. Also in Genesis chapter three, we have that prophetic word about a seed of the woman who's going to bruise or crush the serpent's head. Also speaking of the Messiah that we get to know through the prophets and also, of course, in the new covenant, it is Jesus. Places like Genesis 6, we see that God is a redeeming God. When the world was full of wickedness and violence and God was going to destroy the whole earth by flood, God provided an ark, a way of salvation that is a picture of Jesus and a prophet, Noah, who would preach righteousness in that day. And then we have even Genesis chapter 12, our redeeming God called Abraham to himself and promised to make him a great nation and through him to bless all the nations on the earth eventually. It would be through that nation that the Messiah would come. God gave the law, God gave the prophets, and God gave the promise of a Messiah, and Jesus indeed came to be our Savior, to redeem us to God. And Isaiah 53 tells us what the Messiah was to do, indeed what Jesus did do when he came, a substitutionary atonement. Jesus, who would die, that you and I might live that Jesus would come and die for us, for our sins, to take away our guilt. Listen to how Paul spoke of this in the New Covenant in Romans 5, verse 6 and following. For while we were still weak, at the right time, listen, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Jesus came to reconcile us to God. Jesus came to redeem us who were impacted by the fall. Jesus came to raise us back to life. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Or how about when the angel spoke to Mary about this plan of the Savior to come through her womb, though a virgin, the angel said, she shall bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus came just as God promised because our God is a redeeming God. Jesus came to bring salvation to all who would believe in him. Jesus came to make the offer that God made way back even in Isaiah 118. Hear it again. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall become as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. And that's the offer that our God makes to you today. If you can see today your sinfulness, you see today your need for a savior. Oh, Jesus says, come now, let's reason together. I can, I can change your life. I can raise you from the dead. I can clean you up. But you do have a choice. And even this passage in Isaiah tells you the choices. First, you do have the choice to refuse his offer. So after this beautiful invitation of cleansing in verse 18, did you notice verse 19? If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So for the one who hears of a redeeming God who provides a savior and says, I don't want that. I refuse that. All that awaits that person is judgment. Even here now, God removing his hand of blessing and then to come, God applying his hand of judgment, certainly at the judgment seat at the great white throne, a sentence of eternal loss in hell. But please don't be one who refuses a love like this, a redeeming God. Don't, don't refuse that. I would plead with you today that you would not refuse, but that you would repent. Repent just means that you acknowledge you've been wrong and that you're willing to turn from whatever else you've been believing and turn from whatever path you've been on Leave that path that you might come to your redeemer, this one who loves you so. So admit your sin to God. He already knows that you're now agreeing with him. Lord, I'm hopelessly stained by all my sin. But now, Lord, I'm asking you, the one who died for me, the one who was raised, I'm now asking you. I love how the scripture makes it very clear. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I admitted to you at the beginning of this sermon that there have been times in my life when I've been paralyzed with a big problem and didn't know what to do. But I don't want you to be paralyzed like that. There is a call to make. So it's been over a week now when my mother had a medical crisis at home and uh, I couldn't get her on the phone and, and I was getting concerned. And so went to her apartment and I found her down and uh, she was barely conscious. 
I can tell you in that moment, uh, I was not paralyzed. I knew what to do. I, I, I suppose so ingrained in us. In your medical crisis, you call 911. And I'm happy to say I called 911. They were there super fast. And I really appreciate what they did uh, for my mother and then got her to the ER and really appreciative of what people did there in the ER and then the ICU and the, the excellent care they tried to give her there. And, uh, and I'm just making the point, there's somebody to call, but let me finish this a little bit. The, in the ER uh, and in ICU, how wonderful that the gift of having uh, a day and a half where mom was able to wake up and to spend time with us and talk and to hear her express her, her peaceful faith in Jesus. So many things I could share about that, but so grateful for that. And then ultimate healing in the arms of Jesus that uh, on Wednesday morning early, she went to be with the Lord. But so glad mom had called on Jesus that she could face death with confidence. So glad that we know we can call on God. So today you might think, I don't, I don't know. I'm so stained in sin. I'm just paralyzed. God wouldn't forgive me. Oh, he will. Call on him. Don't be stuck. There is one and there's only one who can save you, cleanse you. The one who made this offer to you all today. Would you, would you reason with him today? Admitting your sin, calling even now on Jesus.